Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. Life began in a garden. Adam and Eve were born in a glorious sanctuary garden where they heard the word of their creator. But sin came into the world in that same garden. The day man wickedly denied the word of his creator, he surely died. The good creation was now marred. Fellowship with God was now impeded. Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden, out of fellowship with God. Until the day a new Adam came in another garden. There in that garden, because of the sinful kiss of betrayal from a brother and friend, Jesus was cast out of that garden and delivered to the authorities and ultimately crucified on the cross. He died for sins, though he himself was sinless and was placed in a tomb for three days. Mary arrived at the empty tomb that morning and began weeping. She turned to who she supposed was the gardener and asked him where he took the body of Jesus. In a single word from the gardener, Mary realized that her Lord stood before her. Jesus was gloriously raised from the dead. A new Adam in a new garden, making new creations in each one of his people. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. God's word to us this morning begins in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David." We'll turn now to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. 
And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's now turn to the back of your bulletin and read together as a congregation Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Please remain standing as we sing. Christ is risen. If you wonder where that tradition came from, it comes out of the book of Luke. In the end of the book of Luke, the angels tell the ladies as they come to the tomb, he's risen, he's not here. But that statement does not return until the very end, after the two travel on the road to Emmaus with, with the... Uh, with Jesus, and he teaches them, and then he eats with them, and then their hearts burned, and they recognized him, and they run back to the 11, and their response is, he's risen indeed. If you would pray with me. Father, we give you praise today for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Son, we thank you that today he sits at your right hand, reigning and ruling. We thank you that today all of our confidence is built on this, that we can rest secure, that we can celebrate and rejoice and dance and sing before you because Jesus has swallowed up death. We thank you that Paul can write and tell us that the curse where you said of your people, where death wears your sting, I'll have no compassion on them, has been turned into a blessing. And death has swallowed it in victory, and there is no sting for us today. We thank you that we are called your people, that we're brothers of our Savior, and that we can be in your presence to hear from you. And Lord, today as we rejoice, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would change and transform us, that you would set our tongues on fire with the good news that Jesus reigns. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, risen and seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Amen. Amen. When I was young, as a very budding theologian, I don't remember how old I was, but quite, quite young, um, I remember hearing... Genesis 3 and the promise there, and I don't even know if I've told this story before, so that tells you I'm getting old. Um, I remember hearing the promise of Genesis 3 that the Son of Man would come and crush the serpent on his head, and of course, it doesn't tell who that is. And so I remember reading that, and I, I laid there and I, I wondered, well, I'm a Son of Man. Maybe it's me. So that tells you a little bit about the mind of a, a young person. Of course, the answer is Jesus. Jesus has come on the cross. His foot crushed the head of Golgotha, and he was raised up to heaven victorious. But in his victory, he brings us with him so that we do par participate in the crushing of the serpent. Today, what we're going to do is look at the effects of the resurrection and do it through the lens of Psalm 16, but as we've already read, and, and where I want to begin is in Acts chapter 2. And this is usually a, uh, a passage you would bring up 
on Pentecost Sunday, so another some weeks from now. But the heart of the message of Acts chapter 2 is built on the foundation of resurrection. And so what I want to do before turning to Psalm 16, we're, we're going to start in Acts 2, go to Psalm 16, and then come back to look at the fulfillment of what Jesus has done through his resurrection, what, what it's won for us. But first, I want to give some context. We read just a, a little bit out of Acts chapter 2. And I can't give too much context. I've been told I have to end on time. So we'll try to keep it limited. But if you recall Acts chapter 2, the tongues of fire have come and rested on the heads of the apostles. And they speak and everybody hears in their own tongue. And the response is, is amazement, fear. And then this question, what does this mean? And Peter's sermon in the rest of chapter 2 is an answer to that question, what does this mean? Immediately after that, there's some mockers and they say, well, they must be intoxicated. What this means is they're just drunk. And Peter's sermon is an answer to that. There is a kind of intoxication, but of course, it's not what the mockers meant by it. And at the center of all of this, what does this mean? is the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter, in his sermon, he begins with Joel chapter 2, and he says, this is what it means. In the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, and in, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And he continues on in his sermon in the part that we read. He says, men of Israel, listen, Jesus came. Joel 2 said God's going to come with signs and wonders. Jesus came with signs and wonders. He performed them in your midst. He was then, by God's plan, delivered up to the cross by your hands, the hands of godless men, and he was put to death. But God has raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for death to hold him in its power. And this is where the quote from Psalm 16 comes, comes in. So it's an answer, remember, and keep this in your mind, it's an answer to the question of what does this mean? The pouring forth of the Spirit, the tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles, what does this mean? And at the heart of it is Psalm 16 and this quotation about the resurrection of Christ. Now, what that means is Peter is not quoting Psalm 16 in order to prove that Jesus was raised up. He has the proof. He says, I saw it. There's no more proof needed. I've seen the living Christ. I've seen him resurrected from the dead, and I can witness to you today. Instead, he's doing something a little bit different with this psalm, and that's the answer we're going to get at is, what does Peter want us to know from Psalm 16? But if we just trace his argument through here very quickly, moving on to verse 29, he says, Brothers, I can confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he does not fulfill Psalm 16. He's both dead and he's buried and he's in his tomb with us today. So the evidence is I've seen Christ raised up and I've seen David's tomb. He's still in it. And so this psalm, which says your Holy One will not undergo decay, you will not abandon your Holy One to Sheol, it must be about Jesus. And so Peter says, David knew this because he was a prophet. And he 
considered. He meditated in verse 30 on what God had sworn to him with an oath, that he would seat one of his descendants upon his throne. So he meditated upon the promise we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that God would take and seat on his throne one of his descendants, and he looked ahead, and this is what he saw. Because he could meditate on that promise, he saw that Jesus must be resurrected. His descendant, the seed that sits on the throne, must in fact rise from the dead. It must be the case for God to keep his promise. And so when he writes of Psalm 16, we have to consider that these words written by David can be spoken out of the mouth of Christ. And we consider that first before we speak them out of our mouths. And so his conclusion then is, because we know this, because we've seen him raised up, we're all witnesses, verse 33, and therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth what you see and hear. And so his answer to the question is, what does this mean? It means that the Jesus who's risen, the Christ who came and walked the earth, who did signs and wonders, who died at your hands, this Christ that's been raised up from the dead, has been seated in the heavenly places, and this Christ is the Messiah. This Christ is the one you were waiting for, and we know it because he's poured forth this spirit from which you both now hear and you see. This is both Lord, he is both Lord and Christ. And so he concludes his sermon out of Psalm 110, and we'll, we'll tie that in before we're done, hopefully. So if we would, turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll make a couple of observations there before turning to Psalm 16. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a familiar passage because it's the one in which God swears this oath. He makes a covenant to David. We read it. This is the promise that... I am going to build your house. I am going to establish your throne and your kingdom forever. He did this, and he says in verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says to David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. So God gave this promise to David, and right in the promise he says that when you lay down with your fathers, you're going to die. I'm going to give a seed. And you can almost, you, you, you could hear Paul's logic in this. He says, the seed. Ultimately, the fulfillment is in the seed, Jesus. It must be the seed. And for there to be a forever kingdom established, that seed must conquer death. It's inherent in the promise. So David wasn't stretching. He wasn't grasping. And when he said, God gave me this promise, therefore, it means he is sending a seed who will conquer death. Because for a king... For a kingdom to endure, as we can see through all the kingdoms of the world, they crumble, they fade, kings come, kings go. If you read the lessons of the chronicler, if you read the lessons in First and Second Kings, you may have a just king for a while, a wise king for a little bit, but when he goes and his seed follows in his place, 
then there's sin and iniquity, a lack of justice, and the kingdom crumbles and the kingdom falls. For God to keep his promise, Jesus must conquer death. He must maintain the inheritance and the kingdom forever. So David knows this. And flipping forward a few, a few chapters, in the last song of his life, David says this. These are the last words of David, David the son of Jesse, and he declares, The man who was raised on high declares this, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of Yahweh spoke to me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, in the light of the morning as the sun rises, a morning without clouds, and the tender grass that springs out of the earth, through sunshine after rain, truly is not my house with God. He has made an everlasting covenant with me. He's ordered it in all things, and it's secure. For all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? And so to his last breath, David's confidence is in this promise, that the Savior would come, the God of Israel who gives the authority of the kingdom to the line of David, would come and as the light of the morning rises, would come as the sun in a cloudless sky to bring justice and righteousness and an everlasting covenant. If you would turn now to Psalm 16. So it's with this promise in mind that we can look backwards with David, and it's with this promise in mind that we can look forwards to the fulfillment of the resurrection of Christ and his ascension on high. And it's with this in mind. So we can read it as with David's mouth speaking it. We can read it with Jesus' mouth speaking it. And at the end, we can then take these promises for ourselves through the person of Jesus. So again, he says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints of the lands, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who chased after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or even take their name upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance. He is my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasure. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful. I will bless Yahweh who counsels me. I will bless Yahweh who counsels me. And indeed, my, my mind instructs me at night. I've set Yahweh before me continually because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. And my flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not forsake me. To Sheol, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo corruption, to enter the pit. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this psalm, it's not difficult to understand. If you read the commentaries, there's a lot of argument over whether David could have meant what he really said, and whether it just means that that God would preserve him in life. We're not going to consider any of that. Instead, I, I want to bring a few observations out of this psalm that bear on the resurrection. So first, looking at the structure, the psalm begins with a plea. It's a, it's a one-word plea. Guard. Preserve. Guard me. Guard me, O God, 
and I take refuge in you. So this is the plea of the psalm. This is the plea of David and the plea of our Savior, Jesus, on the night in which he was crucified. Preserve me. Guard me. And then verses 2 through 4, after the plea, are a reason, an evidence. I'm with God. My lot is with him. My portion is with him. And this is the evidence that he is with God. And so he says, I have nothing good apart from you. In fact, the only people that I'm with, the ones that I love, they're your saints, your people. My visible evidence of my loyalty, fealty to you is that I love your people. And I don't want anything to do with those who call on other gods. I don't want anything to do with idolaters. I won't take their name on my lips. I won't pour out their drink offering of blood. And then he moves through the rest of the psalm, verses 5 through 11, in a, an expression of confidence and trust in God. And it, it's that that's the meat of the psalm that, that Peter and Paul later on in the book of Acts pick up as the evidence that this Jesus who was raised up is the Messiah of Psalm 16. And the central point of this psalm is, is maybe not where you'd expect. The central point is in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. The word rejoice is the word for a spin around. You're moving because the emotion is so high. It can be because of fear, but most frequently it's fear produced in joy. So you think about the resurrection and what happened. Well, those were the only two responses. There was fear, and then there was fear with joy. That's it. Either people trembled and fell down, or they trembled and fell down and rejoiced before God. So this is the effect of this confidence. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. On the outsides of that are the reasons why he has this confidence. So there's a, a, a chiasm that begins in, in verse 5. First, he says that Yahweh is his inheritance. He's his portion. He's his cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And so it's mirrored then in verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He echoes this word pleasures. With God is my pleasure. Everything I have is with him. So the Lord is my portion. And inside of that, we have a, a second set. I'll bless Yahweh who counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Verse 7 is a mirror. In verse 11, you will make known to me the paths of life. And so there's two aspects of this confidence that the psalmist has, that Jesus has. God is my portion. He's the lot, the inheritance that I've been waiting for. And then within that, he teaches me. He instructs me. Then in verse 8, I've set Yahweh continually before me. He's at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. It mirrors verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And because of all this, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Now, one simple observation about, about Psalm 16 so as you move through this expression of confidence, it moves from life through death into resurrected life. The gift is the same thing that the psalmist already has, that he's pursuing. He says, you hold my lot. You, the lines have fallen for me in pleasure. You instruct me. At night, you counsel me. Because of this, 
I have confidence in you. You won't let me go. Because of this, you're not going to allow me, your Holy One to stay in Sheol. You won't forsake me in Sheol. Because of this, you won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay and corruption. Instead, you'll make known to me the paths of life. It's the same thing. You teach me. And after preserving me, saving me, resurrecting me from Sheol, you will still teach me. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I found my pleasure in you, and after death and being preserved, resurrected from Sheol, those pleasures are given to me forever. So resurrection takes what God has already given. It takes, so you can think about that David. He says, you're everything. And I know that you will send that chosen seed that brings the fullness of the promise of the kingdom. And through that, you bring pleasures forevermore. So that's our first observation. As we think about the resurrection, it's meaningless if we don't want what God is giving. If we don't want it now, we won't want it later. All right, so now... What we're going to do is make a, uh, a few pointed observations. And I'm not going to go in order here on purpose because I, I want to draw this back a little more easily to Acts chapter 2. So we'll start then in verse 5 and look at what it means that Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. So the first thing here is that he says, Yahweh is my portion. It comes out of Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, and it's a little bit odd for David to take on his lips because this is what's said of the Levites. God says to them, and why don't we turn there quickly. He says in Numbers 18, verse 20, Then Yahweh said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land or any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Functionally, what does that mean? Well, he says, I'm not, giving you, I'm not giving you any land. Instead, to the sons of Levi, verse 20, 21, Behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance, and in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. And so God gives the tithe to take care of the Levites. He gives from his table. He, he lets them eat from his table, and their welfare comes from his treasure chest. And so Yahweh is their portion. You don't have the land inheritance where you go out and, and you, you till and raise the, the gardens and guard the land. Instead, Yahweh is my portion. That means you eat at his table. You, your livelihood comes from his money. But this is a promise and a guarantee for the Levites, but David takes it on his lips. Now, when you take this in context then, he just said, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. That's also something that's done uh, by the priests. That's a, a priestly activity, to pour out the drink offering, to take up the name of Yahweh in the temple. But David takes this on himself, and, and when we get to Acts chapter 2, and this couples with Psalm 110, we see that that Psalm 2 is a psalm in which the king becomes the priest. And so, uniquely, this is true then of Jesus. Yahweh is my portion and my cup. I eat at his, his table, and that will be important as we move on. But then, 
the words that he used to describe this portion also are descriptive of the lots that, that are cast for the nation of Israel. So he says, you support my lot, the lines have fallen for me in pleasure. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful for me. And so he describes Yahweh as his portion in terms of dividing up the land. So this, this is done in the book of Joshua. The tribes of Israel are given their lot and the, the lines are cast and the psalmist is saying, they've fallen for me in pleasure and beauty. I look at what God has given me, and it's wonderful. So thinking about King David, well, where did the lines fall for him? He's the king of, of God's people, of God's nation. They fell, they fell from the river to the sea. And then we find out later on in, in the Psalm 72 that of David's descendant, they fall from the river even to the ends of the earth. The whole earth is the inheritance of God's king. And so both Yahweh is my portion and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The, the, the land inheritance, the people, and the ability to, to eat and take pleasure at God's table. All of these things God has given to the seed, to the promised one. But embedded in that, we have two, two words there. You support my lot. It's used frequently of the land. But it's also used of, of casting lots. And so when, when you think about how, how the lots are cast, the psalmist is saying, there's no chance in this. You are the one that cast the die. And you can hear the echoes of that and what happens to Jesus on the cross. They cast lots for his clothes. And so the lot that Jesus gets, well, it, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? He says, it's been cast for me and it falls in pleasure in wonderful places. But that lot also includes the crucifixion of our Savior on the cross, as does the word cup. We can't escape it. Yahweh is my inheritance and my cup. He's my portion and my cup. If you try to trace this back through, through the Old Testament, the word for cup, Yahweh is my cup, it, it only comes into usage this way beginning here in the Psalter. So for the priests, they weren't allowed to drink from, the God, from, from God's table. We know, we know from the book of Leviticus, um, in chapter 10, verse 9, he says, you shall drink no strong drink, no wine in the temple. And so of all the offerings, they had a portion they were able to eat. But of the drink offering, so we'll come back to this. You can see the echoes from verse 4. Of the drink offering, they were not allowed to partake. And so his saying, Yahweh is my cup. When you walk through the Old Testament, the cup of Yahweh is wrath, almost always. So when he says, you are my portion and my cup, well, when Jesus takes these words on his lips, they, they mean he's headed to the cross. And yet he can say, I bless the Lord who counsels me. My inheritance has fallen for me in pleasure. He sees through to the end of what God is doing. So we'll come back to this discussion of the drink offering here in just a minute. But moving, moving forward, we see that part of the blessing is that God counsels him. The king has the counsel of God. He sits at his right hand. And so thinking of the temple complex, King David is sitting at the right hand of God in the temple and this is true now, God counsels me, the Yahweh counsels me, and my heart also, my inner kidneys, they instruct me at night. 
And no, that does not mean what it means for the older people in the congregation, your kidneys instruct you. Although that may lead to uh, some instruction as you have more time to contemplate. Um, I was told last week that I was not funny enough and never smiled, so. <laughs> That's my best attempt. So this, the psalmist and Jesus says, part of this blessing is Yahweh counsels me. We take pleasure in that, in learning from the hand of God, both now and in verse 11, after he raises, raises up Jesus and David and then us, you will make known to me the path of life. There is knowledge, instruction that comes from the hand of God forever. And we delight in that. Verse 8, I've set Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And so now the direction of the seating is changed because Yahweh is at my right hand. So he's my strength and my counsel. Now he's on my right before or at the end of this psalm. I'm on his right. The only way to make that work, by the way, is if you're facing each other. You're on my right and he's on, on his right. But he says, because he's on my right, because he's my strength, I will not be shaken. It picks up a theme from the, the previous psalm. So Psalm 15, David is again praying, and he says, O oh, Yahweh, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, does not lift up his soul to falsehood, and does no evil to his neighbor. He does not take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. But he who honors those who fear Yahweh, he who swears to his unhurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at interest or take up a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall not be shaken. He shall not be moved. Who can dwell in the tent of Yahweh? Who can ascend to his holy hill? Who can be lifted up out of the depths of Sheol? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does these things will not be shaken because Yahweh is at his right hand. And so therefore the psalmist says, my heart is glad, my whole being, my glory exalts. I can't help but dancing because my flesh dwells securely. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So he says, and the, the part that is focused on in Acts chapter 2 that we revel in is, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What is Sheol? It's a word that's associated with the grave, but it's not quite the same thing as the grave. It's not hell. Instead, the, throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's used of death, but it's particularly used of the negative aspects of death. And so, sorry, I, I'm going to have to reference some notes at this point. But there's a number of aspects that, that Sheol takes on throughout the Old Testament. The first of those is it's pictured almost as a, as a, per, a person. Sheol has an open mouth and feasts on people. And so Isaiah 5.14, Sheol has enlarged its throat, it opens its mouth without measure. Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din, and the jubilant within her shall descend into it. Number 16, the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that's theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol. As one plows and breaks open the earth, our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. It's like, it's like a person that's chomping up on everybody. 
Let us swallow them alive like Sheol. Consider that as we hear the victory cry of the resurrection. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So the eater has been eaten. Sheol is conquered. And the eater is no more. But Sheol throughout the Old Testament has, has more connotations. I think uh, maybe this is best, best seen if we turn forward to Psalm 88. And look quickly there. People who are alive can talk about being on the edge of Sheol, of going down into the pit. And so we'll, we'll look at a psalm by the Psalms of Korah and beginning in verse 3. My soul has had enough troubles. My life has drawn nearer to Sheol. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I've become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more, and they're cut off from your hand. You've put me in the lowest pit, in the dark places, and your wrath has rested on me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You've removed my acquaintances from me. You've made me an object of loathing, and I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. So Sheol is a place of darkness. It's a place of silence. That's a repeated quality of Sheol. Everybody's silent. There can be no praise of God in this place. Instead, the grave has taken over. It's a bed of maggots and destruction. And there, there are no friends. The preacher says there can be no, no purpose. You cannot make plans in Sheol. Instead, it stops, and you're stuck. And uh, the psalmists say there's a kind of Sheol that takes over people who are alive. So you're like a walking dead man. You have no purpose in life. Sheol has the quality of disrupting life before it reaches its goal, before it reaches the end. And so there's a purposelessness in which you wander through life and it's vanity, it's empty, there's nothing to it, and you come to its end at an untimely end and you've achieved nothing. We arrive at the end and there's no satisfaction, there's no joy, there's no completion. And so you can think of Jacob, he says, I'm going to go down to Sheol and sorrow because I've lost my son. The, the seed that he was looking for it has no end. And so he says, I'll descend to Sheol and sorrow. But by the end, of course, his son is restored to him. And Jacob, as the other patriarchs, instead of descending to Sheol, are laid in the graves of their fathers. They are laid to rest. They have rest. But this quality of Sheol is it breaks off in the middle of life. So in the middle of life, your time comes and your work is done. And it's as if there's no point. The psalmist says, you will not allow me, you will not forsake me to Sheol. It means the life disrupted will come to its end if God keeps this promise. And think about Jesus. He's cut off in his youth. He has no children. He has, he's been cursed by those that he came to save. He's cut off. He's dead and he's buried and it looks as if Sheol has won. He swallowed Jesus whole. And there is no end. There's no 
purpose to what Jesus did. He walked on the face of the earth for 33 years, and the God who became man fulfilled no end. He did not save one person if he lays dead in Sheol. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Death could not hold him. Corruption could not keep him. And so he burst out of the grave, and that's the resurrection that we read about at the end of the Gospels, that we read about in Acts 2, looking back to this passage. And so death does not, death does not hold Jesus, but then there's a, a third aspect of Sheol. I mentioned it, and that in Sheol is silence. And this is important, and that there is no voice that praises God in Sheol. When the psalmists pray, they say, don't abandon me to Sheol, don't leave me there, because there's no praise of God there. When I return to the dust, no one can say, no one can praise God. So mouths are shut, and the end purpose of glorifying God with the mouths that he's given us is not achieved. There's silence. Silence, darkness, and destruction. All right, so I'm going to try to tie this together. Uh, but before we do that, one, one more observation before we turn back to Acts chapter 2. Just need to notice in verses 3 and 4, he says, As for the saints of the land, they are excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This is the proof. I'm with Yahweh. I love him because I love his people. And we see this in the New Testament too. John says, if you say you, you love God but you hate your brother, the truth is not in you. You're just a liar. But Jesus says, David said, As for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But the sorrows of those who chased after other gods will be multiplied, and I will not pour out their drink offering of blood. It's kind of a strange verse here in the middle of this psalm, which is expressing confidence in God. It's not so strange to say that I'll have nothing to do with idolaters. It's a little bit strange to say I'm not going to pour out their drink offerings, particularly their drink offerings of blood, and I will not take their names on my lips. So I just wanted to highlight that and remember that the priest did not have a share in the drink offering. So it was poured out on top of the sacrifice, on top of the ascension offering, the peace offering. You poured out an apportionment of wine on top. And there was no share. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. And we've got to tie up two loose ends here. So the first of those, let's read what David says of the quotation of Psalm 16, starting in verse 25. David said of him, that, that is Jesus, I was always beholding Yahweh in my presence. He's at my right hand so that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exults. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So the first of those, the, the things we need to take care of is he does not finish the psalm. Remember the last line of the psalm? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He doesn't quote that part. He leaves it off. You wonder why, because it really goes with the rest of, of his quotation. But he's preparing for Psalm 110 in his point. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, verse 33. So he leaves it off on purpose, because 
Knowing the Psalter, we would expect this last line, at your right hand are pleasures for more. If indeed, as, Dave, as, as Peter says, this psalm is talking about Jesus, that means that because he did not undergo decay, because he was raised up, necessarily he is at the right hand of God with the pleasures of God in his hand. And so he says in verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. We saw him raised, so this must be true. He's been exalted to the right hand of God and he's received these pleasures. He's received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he connects Psalm 110, and he says, because, because Jesus did not undergo decay, because his soul was not abandoned to Sheol and he was lifted up on the third day, he has been resurrected to the right hand of God. And both Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 are about Jesus. Jesus, the priest king, whose enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, who sits at the right hand of God. But his point is a little bit more than that. This is true so that he can explain the original question. Remember what he said? They said, what does this mean? The Spirit has come in tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles. What does this mean? And his explanation is this. Because he's been exalted to the right hand of God, because he did not undergo decay, because he is no longer in Sheol, God gave him this promise of the Spirit, which he has poured forth today. So the pleasures given at the right hand of God are the Spirit, and he pours it forth. Remember that drink offering? It's poured out. The drink offering is poured out on top of the sacrifice as a drink for God, a portion for God, but the priests had no part in it. They could not drink of it. And so when Jesus says, the Lord is my portion and my cup, well, there, there was no part in that cup in the Old Testament. But here in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out as the gift of God given to his son sitting at his right hand. But there's more to it than that. So if you would look back to verse 26. Peter quotes out of the Septuagint, and he changes one word here. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. It's the, the word for glossa, the tongues of fire that stood over the heads of the apostles. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and he's poured forth of this gift of the Spirit, the drink offering, which now they have the right to partake of in his presence. It's like the many fire from the, the tabernacle spreading throughout the whole world. They have the right to partake. And it loosens the tongues that were bound by Sheol. Remember, in Sheol is just silence. There is no praise of God. But here, because Jesus has been raised up, know this today. He loosens our tongues because he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's poured forth that spirit, the tongues of fire, on us. Just like on the apostles, so that we speak. Remember out of James, the tongue is set on fire, that part that I didn't get to a few weeks ago, the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. But today, with the resurrection of Jesus, our tongues are set on fire by the gift of the Spirit through Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, 
And what does it mean? One more passage. Turn to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from deliverance are the words of my groaning. Jesus takes this psalm on his lips. And it's not just verse 1, it's throughout the psalm. All of Psalm 22 is in view at the end of the Gospels as Jesus hangs on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's that same word of confidence from Psalm 16. You will not forsake me to Sheol. You won't leave me there. It doesn't mean he doesn't go. Jesus does go. And so he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's descending into Sheol in his death. But the psalm doesn't end there. I'm not going to read all of it. Instead, I want to skip forward to verse 22. This is Jesus now. He's prayed for preservation from God sitting in heaven as he enters the crucifixion, as he enters death and Sheol. And this is his proclamation upon preservation. This is what I will do. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted of the afflicted, neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard, From you comes my praise in the great assembly, and I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. And all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even the one who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him, and it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. He has finished it. Jesus' vow, when he prays out, cries out to God, preserve me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Come rescue me. As he descends into Sheol, the place of the dogs and the bulls of darkness that we read about in Psalm 22 is, when you raise me up, I will declare your name in the midst of the assembly of my brothers. I will keep this vow. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. They'll come for a thanksgiving offering, a table set by me, to proclaim this is what God has done for me. And these are the words of Jesus so that we can rightly think about what we do here today when we take his words on our lips. We are the body of Jesus proclaiming our thanksgiving to God for what he has done. We are fulfilling this vow. He pours out the spirit to light our tongues on fire so that we give praise to him. And so for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has kept this vow, I will proclaim your name in the midst of the assembly. He poured out the Spirit, the pleasures of God on us, so that we're filled up to speak His words and to proclaim with thanksgiving His words, to eat His table and to remember, to proclaim. The one that swallows, shield that swallows, death that comes in victory has victory no more because Jesus has eaten it for us, and instead we eat at a table of thanksgiving and peace. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Son, Jesus. We thank you that now, because he lives, because he's been raised up, because he sits at your right hand, we can proclaim the words of Psalm 16 with confidence. You are our Lord, and we have no good apart from you. Your people are the only ones we delight in. We hate all those who abhor you. You are the one that holds our portion. You are our cup. You've drawn the lines for us, and we can say with confidence that they are wonderful. They're full of pleasure. Not because every moment of every day we see pleasure, but because we see Jesus, the one who's gone on before us, He's gone through life, through death, into life again. And we know with confidence that you are the God who raises from the dead. You're the God who doesn't abandon your people to Sheol. You will raise us up from corruption and decay, bodies made whole with voices that will continue to sing your praises forever. And so, Lord, today we give you that praise. Our Father, there is nobody like you. We thank you. We thank you for raising our Savior. We give you praise and honor. You are-